0: warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad for this day. Excited to have my first guest. At about age 30, Shannon Bream was practicing law and she took an internship at a local TV station. She's working the overnight shift and weekends because she fell in love with the news biz. Today, she hosts her own show on Fox News at Night with Shannon Bream. And in the TV business, in the midst of a pandemic, a presidential election and a Supreme Court nomination, she made time to write a book. This is her second book, and it's called The Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of Sixteen Women and Their Lessons for Today. Hello, Shannon, and is Biscuit by your side?
1: You know what? She is not currently, but I'm trying to make sure she's nice and quiet during our chats.
0: <laughs> well, she's a beautiful dog. <laughs> I'll
1: tell her you asked about her.
0: Yeah. So uh, first, I would love for you to tell me about Nell.
1: Well, my grandmother, Nell, is in heaven with the Lord now. Mm -hmm. Um, She was an amazing, just bolt of light in my life. I mean, my parents divorced when I was very young, and we actually lived with my grandparents for several years when I was growing up, and that included Nell and Phil, my grandparents on my mom's side, and uh, listen, she just was such a, a model of faith to me. One of my favorite, favorite traditions we had on Sundays, um, older in her life especially, we would pick her up and take her to church, and she always sat in her specific pew. <laughs> she would be right up front, hear the music, hear the pastor, and we would go to lunch afterwards. She always wore hat to church, and we would have lunch afterwards. And I just, I love those memories of those years. Um, she lived to be 102 oh, wow. and um, was just a joyful person, I mean, throughout her life. And, and even in the end when, you know, there were struggles and she lost my grandfather, um, she just was so faithful about um, church and her witness, and um, I'm grateful for her.
0: Yeah. Uh, Shannon, tell me about your other grandmother, Margaret.
1: Margaret is still with us. She is about to be 96 years old. And um, she, too, you know, an older age has had physical struggles and things, but she every day is sort of this attitude of, listen, I woke up today. The Lord gave me another day she'll tell me, she says, I talk to him all the time. He knows I'm ready to come home. And um, today's not the day. So I'm going to be grateful for this day that I have and um, just know that he's got them all purposed out. And, um, you know, she's just going to be joyful in her circumstances. So a great role model to me as well.
0: Yeah. Shannon, I know you dedicated the book to Nell and Margaret, so I did want to ask right up front about those two beautiful, lovely women. Thank you. And I also want to throw your mom into this whole mix and then ask this question. Do you think you are where you are today because of the strong women in your life.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, my mom is a prayer warrior. She is somebody who if you tell her that you need something or if you've got a need, I mean, she's, you can rest assured, she's just not one of these people, oh, I'll pray for you. No, she will be praying for you for hours in the middle of the night, whenever it is that the Lord prompts her to do that. Um, yeah, she's a very strong, faithful witness. And I, I say, and I'm not even joking, like I want to be her when I grow up, be more like her. <laughs> she is somebody who lives out the whole love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that is every day of her life. I mean, she is just the most selfless, um, godly person. And uh, listen, we're all flawed. She's not a saint, um, but she's pretty close, probably the closest of anybody I know.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Shannon Bream, her new book, The Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. You can go order the book right now and get it because, you know, Shannon, here we are, these amazing women, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them.
1: Exactly. And the thing is, some of their stories I've heard and known growing up, being in the Bible, being in church, being in uh, Christian school, but I learned something about every single woman that is included in the book, just, you know, more historical context, more detail to their story. So if you're somebody who has studied the Word, I think you'll probably be like me and learn new things and, and see new discoveries. And if you are somebody who has, you know, not been interested in the Bible or you've been intimidated by the Bible, I think these stories are so relatable because women from centuries ago have many of the same problems that women struggle with today. I mean, family squabbles and sibling rivalry, infertility, widowhood, um, chronic illness, feeling like God doesn't hear or see you. We see that through all of these stories of these women, and I was just so encouraged and inspired by them and seeing how God worked through every circumstance.
0: When I uh, read the book, I'm I'm thinking this is a this is a deep dive. This is we're not. We're not jet skiing across the water. We're, we're scuba diving, Ch- Shannon. You've done some really serious, deep theological work. You present the stories very clearly. They're fun to read. They're exciting to read. And then you have all these cr- incredibly good questions at the end. This is really well done.
1: So much, and listen. There are people I relied on and reached out to when I had the deeper theological questions or needed context for what were the customs of the time, and right. why was this word important? What does this mean in Greek or Hebrew? Um, you know, so there were people that God gave me as angels. I like to call them along the way, who would let me ask some of those deeper questions, and that's how I learned so much in the process. Really, was through probing the people who are um, more experts at at this than I am. But you know, in that, like I said, I I learned and fully, more fully appreciated these stories. I love study questions, and I'm so glad that we included them because You can do them alone, just kind of take yourself a little deeper into the application and what it means and what you can discover from the scriptures and the stories, uh, or do it as a group. Um, And I'm excited that I've already had several people say to me, yeah, I've ordered this for my mom and sisters. We're going to do it, you know, a Zoom Bible study. Um, I always learn from other people and and what they get from studying the Word and their different perspectives as well. So, yeah, I hope it's something that people will enjoy these stories because, listen, you know, we didn't have to do a thing to them. They're fascinating and exciting and interesting on their own. Um, but that next step of of applying them and digging into them for your own benefit, I hope will help people too.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to say her book is for everybody. And Shannon, I'm guessing that even men who are raising daughters often don't know how to talk to them. Do you think a uh, dad showing his daughter, the women you write about is a great way to to broach difficult topics?
1: Yeah. And I think that they could walk through this book together yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um You know, because we see these women are flawed. They're not um, perfect. And I love that the Bible doesn't sanitize their stories. Um, I don't think any of the major characters included in the Bible are sanitized in any way. God allows us to see their sin and their mistakes. And listen, some of these women make wildly inappropriate uh, decisions, get way (laughs) off track. But I love that we can see God still works through all of it. And so I think that's an important message for women who may feel like, I've really messed up in this area or that area. We all do. I mean, none of us is um, without sin. And so seeing that God could redeem um, their um, very questionable decisions and the messes they made in their life, I think it's a beautiful picture of how He can work through all of our circumstances, good and bad.
0: Shannon, mm-hmm. do you think your book is a, uh, a way to give all women, strong women in their life to look up to?
1: Yeah. because um, I hope that it also dispels the myth that women were sort of, you know, bit players or second-class citizens. Um, that is not how God views them at all. Um, and especially at the the end of the book, I have a chapter about Jesus and several different women he encountered. And I love that they are treated as equals. He goes to people that society would have considered outcasts or, you know, on the fringes or unacceptable. Um, he goes right to them and he doesn't talk down to them. He talks with them. Um, I think about the the Samaritan woman at the well as a perfect example of somebody who, you know, she was there in the heat of the day because it was the least, um, you know, acceptable or enticing time to go, but she was living a life where she was, you know, ashamed and an outcast, and Christ went to the well knowing full well he would see her and talk with her. And he doesn't judge and berate her. He has a conversation with her. And I love to see the compassion that he has with all of the women that he interacted with. Um, and there were women who were part of his, um, his inner circle who studied with him and learned from him, which was not the norm of the time. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have leaders like Deborah who led the entire nation of Israel. So I think that there's so much to see there with leadership and with respect uh, An inclusion, that the way that God views women, um, we're created in His image, and um, there's great respect, and I think that's all throughout the book, the Bible itself, and, and we just try to share it in this book as well.
0: One of the stories I would love for you to talk about is Mary and Martha of Bethany, because as I think of John 11:5, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What a great time to talk about that this week.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these sisters of Lazarus were very close to Jesus, and he was in their home. And, you know, we always think of, uh, in the Christian faith, people say, are you a Mary or a Martha? Because we have this conflict (laughs) Mm -hmm. between the sisters where Martha's like, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to help me? I'm waiting on you guys. I'm doing everything. And he says, you know what? She's chosen to study at my feet, and that's the better thing, and I won't take that away from her. So not— Disregarding what Martha was doing, because there is certainly room for us all to be in service, Um, but I think that he was highlighting that studying at his feet and really having a relationship with Christ is going to be the better one we have to choose. We shouldn't be about just the busy work or the service, but really about our relationship with Christ. Um, and we see as the, as we walk through their grief uh, that they had in the loss of their brother Lazarus and why Christ had the timing and allowing him to pass away and then coming back and resurrecting him um, so I think that there are just so many lessons then as we as we go on to look to the resurrection the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is in this book as well and the roles that these women played in being in ministry to Christ uh, and how he ultimately reveals himself in the garden to Mary Magdalene and we talk about why there are so many Marys in the Bible too <laughs> why <that name> was the <laughs> popular. yeah, um, But yeah, I mean, there's so much of Holy Week that
0: is in this book as well. It's uh, lovely that you sorted out all the Marys in this book. It was very helpful. <laughs> it's worth the price of the book alone. Um, when I think about the story, when Martha, and you, you say this in the book, Martha understood the resurrection to be an event that would happen in the future. Jesus sh- showed her, her that the resurrection was a person, and I always loved that. Because uh, Mm -hmm. Jesus dealt with them so individually. He sort of said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And with Mary, he just wept along with her. Mm -hmm. So beautiful that he meets people where they're at
1: exactly and and he knows that we're all different and we're human beings and that we all have different strengths and weaknesses and meets us right where we are um and he does relate to people differently in the bible and i think it's wonderful that you point that out it's such a great point that um it's not a cookie cutter uh situation it's a true relationship that's what he wants to have with us
0: yeah it wasn't an, an across the board answer here's my answer for all of you he met with them individually okay. and mary just needed tears just uh-huh. Jesus's presence it's just so beautiful let me take a uh-huh. short break I'm talking to Shannon Bream she's written her new book the women of the bible speak the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today I highly recommend you get your hands on this book ASAP you can head over right now to amazon.com and get your order in take a short break and be right back I'm back with Shannon Bream. In addition to everything she does, she also used to contribute uh, recipes to Fox News. I tried to make one of them, Uh, the chicken pot pie and cobbler recipe. I don't know if you know this, Shannon, but those are actually two separate recipes. Mine came out more like a Swanson's TV dinner. It's kind of the main course and dessert all in one.
1: I know, there's a lot there. There's a lot in those recipes, and it shows you just the level of technique and expertise that I have with cooking.
0: <laughs> so it was lovely. Thank you for that. Um, so you, uh, I want to talk about some of your favorite characters as you write wrote your book, The Women of the Bible Speak. Who came to the surface for you personally?
1: You know, I've always loved the story of the woman. We don't even know her name, but she had the issue of bleeding for 12 yes. years in the Gospels, that story has just always resonated with me that, you know, in in studying this, what I figured out is that she was probably considered unclean in those days, meaning she wouldn't have had a place studying in the temple or in the markets. She's probably very isolated and wasn't supposed to be among people. So she, when we meet her, has spent everything that she had. She has nothing financially left. She's had no cure, no doctor who could help her. And she hears about Jesus. And she says, you know what, if I could just get to him and touch the hem of his garment, I believe that would be enough to heal me. So she's out among this crowd and that's exactly what she does. And scripture tells us she immediately was healed, but also that Jesus knew that some power had gone out from him. So he turns around and says, who touched me? And, you know, one of the disciples sort of laughing like, "Um, you're in this crowd. People (laughs) are always touching you. And we know, of course, Christ knew who touched him. And in the gospel accounts, we see that this woman fell down before him, trembling in fear. And she certainly knew that he would know it was her. And I wonder what went through her mind if he was going to berate her for being there and being unclean and reaching out to touch him, even his garment. Um, and he doesn't do any of that. We see in all the accounts, the first thing he says to her is daughter. So he's mm. giving her complete compassion and acceptance in the midst of the situation. And he says to her, your faith has made you whole. I mean, clearly it was his divine power, but she had to reach out and go there and, and believe that it would be enough. And it was. And I just have always admired her great faith and and just the picture of seeing Christ's compassion for her through that, too. It's just inspiring to me.
0: Don't you notice Shannon how Jesus gravitates to the people at the margins? Mhm. I mean this Yeah, and you think of, this woman obviously would have been isolated, uh, probably had spent everything she had trying to get well mm-hmm. and was just at her wit's end.
1: Yeah, and and you think about the fact that he went to the woman also who was about to be stoned for adultery mm-hmm. and um the case against her uh, appears to be solid and the law would say this is the right thing to do. And Christ interceded there and, and you know, made everybody who was accusing her and about to stone her to death to think about their own sin. And it wasn't that he excused what she had done, um, but what he said is, I don't condemn you. You know, go and live a life free of sin. Don't go back to the sin, but you're not condemned as a person or as a human being. Um, he saved her life, but I, I like to think it wasn't just a physical life. He saved her spiritual life as well. And, um, you know, that, that wasn't something that the religious leaders of the day were known to do, was to, to go to the rescue of an adulterous woman or um, somebody who was living in sin, as the, you know, it was phrased for the woman at the, the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, and even you think about Zacchaeus, the tax keeper or, or the tax collector, um, he didn't shy away from people that were unpopular and that had sin and that were messy.
0: When I— think of the Marys, and you did a beautiful job in your book sorting them out, which I appreciate. I would love for you to uh, comment on on Mary, the mother of Jesus.
1: Yeah, you know, I I feel like so much of my study of her over my lifetime has been that very beginning, that visit from the angel telling mm-hmm. her about her divine appointment and what's coming. And I've always focused on her there. And in studying this, I thought, It's so interesting to me to look through her life, the the places where she's clearly a mother to Jesus, but also there for his ministry. And I think about her at the end at the crucifixion, seeing your child falsely Mm. accused and tortured and beaten and killed. I I cannot imagine any mother having to walk through that, Um, but she's faithful and she's there. And we see that after his death as well, she is with the disciples. She is in prayer. She is faithful, and she is an early part of the um, the earliest church. And so while my focus in the past has always been on just those beginning, um, probably overwhelming days that she had as a young woman, realizing she would give birth to Christ in the human form, um, I, I thought it was important to look at the rest of her life, too, and how um, she was faithful, and she was there from beginning to end of Jesus' ministry, and and even in the, um, the toughest days after His crucifixion.
0: Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the mother of Jesus watching and witnessing the crucifixion and the horrific mm-hmm. event that must have been. It's just amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's incredibly painful to mm-hmm. think of. And, you know, I, I just, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. And um, she was... Um, you know, there for the good and the bad. And she knew from the beginning that it was a very special assignment, a divine assignment, but I I have to think she couldn't have known this is the way it was going to go. And um, yet she was there for every moment.
0: Mm -hmm. Shannon, what did you learn about uh, Rachel and Leah? Because, you know, you think that most marriages must have been arranged, um, but then you read that uh, Jacob really kind of liked the way Rachel looked. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and, um, you know, it's kind of that love at first sight kind of thing, it seems, that was going on there. Um, and, you know, he worked uh, seven years with the deal with her father so that he could marry her. And then at the last minute, the dad sneaks in after the wedding feast, the other older sister, who we're told was not the favored one, was not the beautiful one. So I think about, oh my goodness, how much double crossing. And for Rachel to know that it was her sister that went to him for that wedding night and not her, Um, and for Jacob to wake up and feel so betrayed by the whole thing. Now, listen, if you know Jacob's story, he was a bit of a double-crosser himself, Mm so (laughs) some of this is catching up with him. Um, But we have this juxtaposition in that, um, you know, Rachel and Leah had this divide over uh, who was having children, who wasn't having children, who was loved by Jacob, who didn't feel loved by Jacob. I mean, each of the sisters had their own pain and their own struggle. And um, feeling rejected and seeking God's favor and and seeking children, which was very much viewed uh, as a means of of favor or viewed as God's favor upon the women. Um, They had a terrible sibling rivalry that, you know, must have hurt them both very much at some point. Um, So I just think there's a lot there about relationships, about God's faithfulness, about um, continuing to take your hurts and your desires to him in prayer. Um, he knows us. He knows our hearts and our vulnerabilities. But I think there is definitely something in taking that next step of actually going to Him in prayer, sharing them, and asking for help.
0: Mm-hmm. Shannon, one of my favorite stories is Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Easter morning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She really is yeah. the very first
1: evangelist ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that, That listen, the disciples um, were there, and they were by Christ's side all through His ministry. But ultimately, his resurrection is revealed to a woman. Right. And Mary was there. um, She was so overwhelmed with grief and feeling like um, Jesus' body had disappeared and asking, you know, where have you taken him? She's so overcome with her grief that she doesn't even realize she's actually talking to Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener (laughs) or somebody there. And she says, just tell me where you've taken him. That's all I want to know. And when he says her name, he says, Mary. She immediately recognizes it is her beloved teacher. It is Jesus. And um, I can't imagine the enormous joy she must have felt in thinking, oh, my goodness, he's really not gone. He's everything he said he was. And um, her grief must have just instantly turned into immense joy. And she's, yes, then the one um, left to run and tell everybody, Um, it's true, he's resurrected, he's back.
0: I love Mary Magdalene. I love how tough she is. I, I think she would have been ready to arm wrestle the gardener.
1: I think so, too. <laughs> Where'd you put I the body? She was so, I want answers. She was so, right. She was so passionate in her devotion to Christ. I think you're exactly right.
0: But, but sadly, I mean, she was she was looking for the wrong Jesus because Jesus says, I will raise up on the third day. So, you know, she was she had gone to the tomb that morning looking for a dead body. So how beautiful it was when she was when it was made known to her by Jesus himself just that joy that immense joy it's just so beautiful
1: it is and you think about it it's so easy for us in retrospect, to look and see, well, why didn't they get it when he said this or that? Why didn't they understand? It's so easy for us because we have, uh, you know, the book and the cheat sheet about exactly what's happened (laughs) and, and the way to best understand it. So I have to remember that, you know, what if I were these folks in their shoes at the time? It would have been confusing. I would have been overwhelmed or maybe not understood everything Christ had tried to explain to them. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, we have a hindsight on it, but I think about in those moments how confused they may have been and overwhelmed at times.
0: Mm-hmm. The Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today written by Shannon Bream. She's been my guest. Shannon, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Well, thank you for having me yeah. and um, just for highlighting these stories that I think hopefully will encourage a lot of folks.
0: Oh, indeed they will. And have a very happy Easter. You too. Thank you so much. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with lots more. So it seems that there could be as many as 150 million people that will go into extreme poverty this year as a result of some of the pandemic's economic devastation. And there's going to be an estimated 5.4 million kids that are going to be living in orphanages that are already living in orphanages around the world. Why was that hard to say? I have no idea. Anyway, a number that's surely going to get bigger. Uh, my guest is um, Ellie Oswald. She's the Executive Director of the Faith to Action Initiative, a coalition of organizations focused on promoting best practices in care for orphans and vulnerable kids. Ellie, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, this is the first day with my new mouth, and I think uh, so far so good. Got to, <laughs> good. Some, got to do some fine-tuning, but I should be fine by tomorrow. That's what, That's what my hope is anyway. Well, so glad to have you on the show. Let's talk a little bit about what Faith Faith to Action is.
2: Yeah, Faith to Action is such a unique coalition. So it's, a, it's not an organization. It's the collection of a bunch of Christian organizations that have come together to work with each other um, to promote the best care possible for orphans and ch- vulnerable children all over the world. And specifically trying to talk to kind of the Western U.S donors and supporters to help them understand what we're learning is working really well for kids on the ground. Try to educate them and support them in in, um, pursuing best practices for those kids.
0: When I think of orphan care, I I don't know what image I have in my mind, because I can't think of uh, places like this in the United States, but I don't really know this very well. So I would love for you to educate us a little bit on Oh, the way Christians think about orphan care.
2: Yeah, I mean, you have to start by recognizing that Christians, from the very beginning, have been generously, um, sacrificially responding to orphans and abandoned children. You know, the early church were taking these children into their homes. We've seen incredible support of adoption and foster care here in the yet in the U.S. Um, really beautiful. But at some point along the way, orphanages kind of became a major focus for Christian support. Um, Faith to action kind of had its beginning when um, uh, the HIV and AIDS epidemic was was coming to a head and hearing on the ground that so much of the response to, um, quote, the orphan crisis was to build orphanages. And As we kind of got further down in the response, there was a a huge increase in orphanages in sub-Saharan Africa. And like 85% in one country, Zimbabwe, they were um, measuring 85% of funding for those orphanages were coming from Christians. Um, Even today, there's this study that will be coming out soon from the Barna Group that that identifies about 20% of U.S. Christians currently give to an orphanage, and 20% of mission trips visit an orphanage. So it's obviously... uh, it's a big deal in the way us Christians are trying to serve and respond to, you know, the calling in scripture. Mm-hmm. I think the, the challenge has come though, is when we think about, you know, today people think about the, the need or the problems, the problem of orphan. And they think the answer equals the orphanage. Um, but if you think about it, the opposite of an orphan is a child who has family. So our goal at Faith to Action is to come alongside Churches and Christians to kind of redefine what we mean by orphan care, Um, because um, while you know some might think orphanages are you know awesome, the best thing ever, some might realize it's you know a necessary evil in situation, not evil, a necessary thing in a situation where you know poverty is really bad and the needs are so big. But what we're finding is that's not necessarily true; that there are actually proven solutions to the problems that. Um, these children are facing, and those solutions are in the context of families, their own families, um, foster families, and otherwise. Um, So it's been really exciting to watch the church step up and respond and kind of redefine orphan care in a much broader way, in a way that allows kids to be in family.
0: Mm -hmm. So I appreciate uh, Ellie talking about uh, some of these misconceptions that, you know, maybe believers have about uh, orphan care and and, you know, as we try to dig into the, you know, what is that truth about orphans? I think, you know, it's, it's, you talk about the orphanage, orphanage being a place where they are just hopefully temporarily on the way to a loving family that will care for them.
2: Hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple things. I think um, we've unfortunately kind of, of oversimplified complex problems that these kids are facing. So a couple of misconceptions I think are really common that we run into in our um, engagement with Christians and the church every day is um, that children in orphanage are in orphanages because they're orphans. And that's simply not true. Um, globally, there's st- the statistics vary by country, but 80% globally of children in orphanages aren't actually orphanages or orphans. I'm sorry. Um, they have a living parent or even two living parents. And the vast majority there have other family members who would potentially care for them if they have the support to do so. The reason most kids are in orphanages, um, a foundational reason is because they're really poor. Their families are poor and they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, Bethany Christian services is a great organization does stuff locally, of course, but globally they do some stuff that's really interesting. Um, they talk about, um, it's often poverty plus another reason. So, um, it might be poverty there you know a family's in poverty but they have a crisis you know a father loses their job or maybe a child is born with a disability or something else happens in the family that triggers that family actually to think about the orphan as a or the orphanage as a solution solution to their problem so they're trying to just survive get their phys- their children's physical needs met um, but you know our hope is that we can we can support people in having those physical needs met without compromising, you know, the emotional and the social and the spiritual needs that we have that are best met in family. So that's a huge kind of misconception that we have here in the West.
0: Mm-hmm. So we need to change that misconception. How do we do it?
2: <laughs> well, I think it's important to kind of um, recognize, you know, another misconception, which is that um, families couldn't care for these children, especially children who are currently orphanages. The truth is over and over, we see families step up. Their own families, um, whether it's parents or aunties or uncles, can and will care for them. Mm-hmm. And um, just helping them discover what the challenges that they're facing, helping them get access to the resources they need to overcome that challenge, and then monitoring and making sure that kid is safe. Um, it's found tons of success. Um, kinship care is one thing we use a term we use but essentially it's just this idea that um, close family relatives or close friends are just an incredible opportunity to ensure these kids can stay in family stay within their own social groups their own family sometimes. and actually the idea of taking in a child into your own family is kind of the original response especially in Africa Um, to crisis in the family or orphans. Originally, you know, before orphanages, another family would take a child in. So it's more of the indigenous response. Um, And so that's just a huge area where we can support more is um, to see either biological families supported or relatives caring for these kids or even some form of temporary short-term foster care. Maybe it means moving towards you know, long-term adoption in a different family. Um, but all of these are, are different solutions, and the goal is that we can make decisions based on that unique child, that family's challenges, um, instead of assuming, okay, you're having a crisis. You know, the only way you're going to get that physical support or maybe access to school is to go into the orphanage, but instead bring those services to the family and wrap around the
0: family. Oh, Ellie, what a loving loving response that would be.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and what's exciting is this is in scripture, right? Um, We see in creation God God created families, and God's intention for that. And we see other places God sits the lonely in families. Um, A really interesting um, kind of um, exegetical piece um, we talk about is how you know the call to care for the orphan is almost always right next to the care for the widow. Mm The orphan and the widow are presented together. And we kind of separate them and say, here's our program for the orphan, here's our program for the widow. But potentially those early readers and those early listeners of the scripture, they would have understood that as a family unit. Right. You know, it's more about the fatherless. This is about, you know, providing support to a single mom or a single dad. Um, And I think it kind of helps open our eyes to that calling, because that can be so much more than what we might think it is.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Ellie Oswald is my guest. She's the executive director of the Faith to Action Initiative. Ellie, talk about the uh, COVID nineteen and how that has been impacting families and and kiddies around the world. You know, especially considering this issue that we're talking about of, of orphans.
2: Yeah, I think COVID is such a unique crisis in our world because normally, when there's a you know disaster somewhere u s Christians are you know so generous in their response, and you know the attention is on that, but unfortunately, it's this is a global pandemic, and so we're all affected and so it's really hard to know what's going on in other countries with other populations It's not in the media um, there are so many problems to tackle in our own life in our own country that we don't necessarily um, know exactly what's going on around the world, but as you mentioned um, those of us who kind of are in this global development world, um, there's been a lot of research and study and projecting to understand what this means for children and families. And um, the study you mentioned, um, the biggest piece is going to be around is around the secondary impact, not necessarily, for sure, the impact of losing uh, a parent or a, or a grandparent that might provide care for a child. And you need to take that very seriously. But more families are impacted by this by the secondary um, impacts, which include the fact that we think we're going to see a huge, huge increase in the number of, of families who drop um, into extreme poverty, and that hasn't happened for many years. And so this increase is significant and takes us back. So, so that means more families are struggling to care for their kids. That means kids who you know stopped going to school because of the crisis aren't gonna come back because they're working in the fields now and and they're starting to rely on that income, it means um, what we've seen in other places, an increase in um, women, uh, young young girls having early marriage or getting pregnant, Um, we um, we see often families at the brink of survival and therefore utilizing the orphanage as an opportunity to meet the needs of their family. So we need the, we need U.S. Christians more than ever, and I know we're going through a lot, myself included. But if we we can find ways to support organizations that are helping families during COVID, um, and find ways to kind of be informed and understand what's going on, on the ground, so that we can we can continue to be that light in the world, like we so often are when it comes to these kind of disasters.
0: Mm-hmm. Ellie Oswald is my guest. She's the executive director of the Faith to Action Initiative. After a short break, we'll be right back with uh, Ellie. Ellie Oswald is my guest, executive director of the Faith to Action Initiative. She also served as the Children in Crisis Research and Communications Coordinator for World Vision International Child Development and Rights Technical Team. And she is uh, has her heart in this topic. And I love what you're sharing with us, Ellie, although some of it is hard news. It's difficult to hear.
2: Yeah, I think... Um it's it's a struggle sometimes to think about or to, to hear new information and think, well, did I do something wrong or, or did, were we doing something wrong? And um, I think the beauty of that is, as Christians, we know we're constantly being atoned. We're constantly, you know, being um, growing in our maturity and our faith. And so it's it's just a similar opportunity for us to just keep exploring and asking questions and learning and and doing good and then knowing in the end that you know what this is God's work so He's mm-hmm. got it um, and I can I can be a part of it and I can do my best but at the end of the day I I can sleep in my bed in peace knowing that He's He's doing this work through me um, and uh, and through the many others who are doing it.
0: A Great reminder for believers to be praying for these children, uh, throughout the world, because I, I would assume that, that there is some, um, abuse in some of these orphan orphanages and they are, are not always as tender and loving as we think they might be.
2: Yeah. I mean, there, there are limitations to the care that an orphanage can provide mm-hmm. in comparison to a family and, you know, um, science and, um, Actually, neurological science and other social sciences have shown us the challenges of kids, especially young kids, being raised in kind of a, a group setting like that. Even a really positive group setting has an impact because kids need that one-to-one social interaction to build secure attachments and then to develop and their brain to grow and then for them to have strong um, um, social relationships as they grow up. So there's there's quite a bit of science that kind of shares this challenging aspect of the impact of orphanages on kids. Um, we also know that um, as you referenced that orphanages are often not a safe place for kids because they um, can be kind of a easy access point mm-hmm. for people don't, who don't have good intentions. And we talk to people about short-term missions sometimes around this issue because, you know, we go on short-term missions to serve and we have the best intentions and we want to love on children. But we also, when we do that, kind of have opened and started a system that allows people to come in and engage with really vulnerable kids, kids who are, you know, kind of the most vulnerable and um, therefore people with bad intentions, Um have started orphanages or have visited them and really hurt kids, and um, that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to think, okay, how can we do this better? Yeah. Are there some better ways to do this work? Um, and there are. That's the good news is it's not all bad news. There's some incredible work going on, lots of wonderful Christians leading in this kind of family care movement.
0: Yeah, well, let's keep—let's talk about that some more. How do we— um... I know you've written some several articles, and one you mentioned a sort of a global movement of changing the way that we care for orphans. So maybe you could talk about that some more.
2: Yes. So I've been kind of in this work for—I'm oh, not good at math. Let's see, twelve years or so. So not that long, but long enough to see a lot of change. And right now is probably the most exciting time in some of the reforms that are happening. In right before COVID hit, um, the UN rights on the um, rights of the child had a resolution. They do it every single year, and it's a different topic, but this was the first time it was focused on kids um, uh, who are outside of parental care. So that just means kids who are not living with their parents. And it was huge. Every single country ended up agreeing to this resolution um, that very specifically talks about we have to prioritize care for kids and families in our countries and we have to end kind of the institutionalization of children. And that is a big deal. Um, and, the, and the fact that it was more specific than it's ever been. So then many of us who are kind of Christians in this space, you know, seeing this kind of government push, we're asking, what does this mean for the church? Especially the church who's been loving and supporting and nurturing children all over the world since the beginning of the church. Um, So we had this meeting in New York with 30 different Christian organizations um, and church networks. Um, And from that, you know, really recognizing the church needs to lead in this, you know, and we had Catholics represented there. We had the World Evangelical Alliance. We had World Vision, World Relief, you know, some big organizations and some small ones. Um, And they decided, let's let's just be clear on what we mean. So we created a pledge together. It's called the Global Church Pledge, and um, it's just two sentences. And the concept essentially is we recognize the importance of family for um, every child. And we're going to do whatever we can to see that children find a safe and loving family. Either that's their own family or that's an alternative family. And now I think 75 organizations have signed to it, and it just um, – It just kicked off recently, so it's growing in momentum. Um, But what I love about this is, you know, it's sometimes I talk to people about, you know, the train of change. So this UN kind of resolution was another example that there's change happening in the way kids are being cared for around the world. And the train has essentially left the station. It's moving, and trains are pretty hard to move. So then where are us Christians on this? Um, train. You know, we could be the cabooses, right? We're kind of getting dragged by mm-hmm. the engine at the very back. Um, you know, maybe even resisting pulling our brakes a little bit. Um, and that's not a fun place to be. I've heard orphanages where they get knocks on the door from government officials saying, we're going to take all your kids. You know, you're not licensed and you haven't gone through. So, I mean, that's terrible. That is not what's good for kids. That's not good for anyone. So we can be the caboose, which I don't think anybody wants to be right. Or we could be actually, the spotlight, the headlight of the train, because you know we talked about seeing the intention for family and scripture and how the church has, has cared for these kids, you know, since the beginning. So could we be the spotlight of that train that shines the vision of care for children and families? Um, and that's really what this global church pledge is starting to rally around: is this idea, like, let's not just be, um, you know, putting our heads down, doing the work in front of us, but let's be leaders in this. In this movement. And anybody can sign it. It's just globalchurchpledge.org. And um, individuals, if your church wants to sign on, they can add their logo. Um, If you're an organization, you can sign on. Um, But yeah, it's just an opportunity to just step back and go, okay, church, (laughs) how are we going to be a part of this, and can we be leaders?
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So maybe we can just—I can ask Ellie um, about— what we can do this week. I mean, what what can we do to support children in these families? Because I love the fact that we want to get these kids into a family, their own or yeah. another family.
2: Yeah, so I think we need to recognize that U.S. Christians, as I've mentioned, are major players in the care for children around the world. And, you know, I have people from UNICEF and all these other, you know, secular agencies, you know, saying like, when are Christians going to rally behind this and i say well they already are (laughs) but we have a unique role to play because we we have been supporting kids all around the world and in our backyard as well and if we could you know um shift our support for these children um it would make a huge difference so it's not about stopping anything i want to be clear about that i'm not i hope no one listens to this and is like okay i'm gonna stop funding this orphanage that is not what we're talking about Mm -hmm. it's a it's about a adapting what we're doing with the new knowledge that we have and caring for kids, caring for the same kids, but caring for them in a different setting or in a different location. Um, So there's lots of ways we can do that, Um, just real practical. um, One is fund and support family care organizations. You know, look where your money's going. Is it empowering families and communities? Can you talk to someone that you work with to ask about how they're empowering families? Um, And if you could get your funding behind that, um, there's lots of great organizations doing this work. We have some on the faith to action website. It's under our COVID response. Okay. So if you click the COVID response, there's a bunch of Christian organizations who are like specifically during COVID trying to make sure families don't fall into desperation, that they can continue to care for those kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's definitely obviously a very simple way but also we need to think about how we do our short-term mission trips you know are we visiting are we visiting um, organizations that are strengthening families on the ground you know as we mentioned there's some real risks to visiting orphanages um, but we can utilize our our time abroad when that day comes um, to put your support behind families and family strengthening and and things that are making it easier for families to care for their children. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Ellie, we just have about 90 seconds left as we're looking at uh, Holy Week. Maybe we can think about uh, this significance of the week and what lessons might we consider when we go and think of orphans this week?
2: You know what I'm thinking about— a broad question at the end. Yeah, for 90 seconds. Uh, um, What I'm thinking about this week— It's just that sacrificial love that God has that was displayed, obviously, on the cross. And for so long, to me, that was very personal, and it totally is still very personal. But it's also just so corporate as well. This is the moment in history that it moved from, you know, God's protection and care Mm -hmm. for a specific group of people to everyone. You know, this is the moment where everyone was offered grace and I think the opportunity for us—we're we're invited into that story. And what does it mean for us to see, especially we know in scripture, the the vulnerable, the marginalized, um, mm-hmm. for us to to recognize in them the opportunity for hope and restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of that broader vision is really what's been exciting me this week.
0: Oh, fantastic, Ellie. Thanks for doing the show. So nice to meet you.
2: You too. Yeah. Take care.
0: Ellie Oswald's been my guest, executive director. Of the Faith to Action Initiative. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back.